and then, and then it all kicks in. So it's quite a while. It's a good minute before it all kicks in. You've got this drums bit, and then you've got a little breakdown bit, and then it all kicks in. And that is where I start my rap. Now, I, the guy has introduced me, like, he's like, hey, we've got a rapper from London. His name's Mr. C, and he's going to rap for you, and he gives me the mic, and then starts the record. So and I'm standing there waiting for the bit where I start. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it works. I was like, really, I should have been an MC. Yeah, how you doing, everybody? Are you ready? None of that. I'm new. I, this is, uh, you know, I'm a, you're just waiting. Know. You're like waiting I, for the. So, like, so people were like, come on, hurry up. What are you come doing? On, come on, come on. Yeah. And then it breaks down. Heavy, heavy. Bye, bye, bye. I know that. And then, and then it kicks in, dun, 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 like the whole thing comes in. And so once it kicks, like, and by the time it gets to the breakdown bit, you can you can hear people going, oh, like, sort it out, boo. What is that? You know what the English are like? Well, they're all piss takers. Well, I was English are piss takers. So people are taking the piss. And then as the beat kicks in, I start, right? Well, I'm slick. Bad, check me out. I got to show you what rapping is all about because I'm rocking on the mics every day of the week. Same rap that I just did, and it went off. People started going mad, like, ah! it kicked right off. It was crazy. And I was like, that was it. I'm in, I'm addicted. I'm 17. I'm like, that is it. That is, this is me. This is what I'm doing. This is, you know, I've been writing lyrics for a couple of years. I've got books full of lyrics, and I'm now ready. This is it, my first club gig. And I went back in there um, every every night for the week that we was in Tenerife and got on that mic. But the second day, now I'm like, okay, now I know I need to, like, talk to them. I'm not having that again. So then, you know, that was where I learned to be an MC. Like, you know, I'd already been a rapper for a couple of years, but now I'm learning to be an MC because now I've got to interact with the crowd before I start to deliver lyrics. See, and that was, how, do you, that was- how do you become, like, you know, yes, you're a rapper. But what's what gives you the intuition to become the MC? Like, did you remember seeing someone else do it? Or no, some- it was, it, no, it was basically not wanting to be booed again when someone introduces but me. See, people don't realize that. They don't understand no. it. They think it's like before magic. That, look, before that, I would be in this uh, CB Radio Breakers Club, and I would be in there, and the DJ would be playing it electro or disco, and I'd say, yeah, give me the mic, and I wouldn't do any MC, and I'd just start rapping. So that for me was the thing. Whereas now this dude is he's introduced me, stopped the music in the nightclub, introduced me, and started. Proper. So I was expecting that. I was expecting for him to just carry on playing music like he was, and then give me the mic, not do the whole introduction. And that was what made me go, "Oh wow, uh, I need to actually talk to people. I need to address people. I need to get them g'd up a little bit." And so the next night I went back. That was what I'd learned. I was like, okay, hey, everybody, how you doing? We're going to have some fun. Yeah, all right. It's a, we're going to start rapping for you in a minute, but I want to make sure everybody's into the group. You're into the group? Yeah, all right, let me see you moving. You see? So now I know what I'm doing. Now I know that I've now got a plan. I'm not going to get booed again. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do it a different way. It's horrible. That boy yeah. is it takes you right down you're like oh my god what am i gonna do what am i gonna do so that that was where i learned to be an mc as well as because an mc and a rapper are two different things ah so like for example everyone if you ever watched the, the the man himself james brown okay and of course james brown with his dance and everything he had his mc come out 
Yes. Up the crowd and the yes. MC, the greatest entertainer of all time. The man yes. himself is going to turn you out and blah, 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 and keep going. And then, dun, 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 James Brown come out. Hey! Yes. And even James Brown did emceed as well. Are you ready? Are you ready to get into it? I'm going to get up and do my thing. You know, like I said, machine man. Are you ready to the, the, the just that's yeah. MC. That's yeah. MC. And it came, I mean, the whole rap scene started in in, in New York with loudmouth DJs talking that's on the right. mic. That's how the MC thing started, and then rap came out of that. So you know, for me, it was it was a quick learning curve. Like, in my first club gig, this happened. And it wasn't even, you know, it's me going up and begging the DJ to get on the mic. But, but see that, now, hang on, Mr. C. So we got people like Tony Prince in your country that is doing it his way, DJing and emceeing in between and doing a English rap, but posh rap. You know what I'm saying? So that was going on both sides. But yes, in New York, in the neighborhoods on the street, they'd be going in the middle saying yeah. spoof and then yeah. I, I, had a, I had a lot of help at the beginning um my yeah, I, started, <clears throat> I started writing my rap lyrics and it was me and my buddy that i used to hang out with and he would wait he was buying records before me he had his collection was getting big he liked to buy records so his name was robert brown really he's like my bestie we used to hang out together we used to do body popping together and all that and like we said all right let's let's start rapping yeah, we both start rapping. And like, okay, so I'm writing my lyrics and I, he's got his lyrics, but they're not his. He was stealing them from a New York rap. He was getting these tapes, yeah, from New York. Yeah, um, and there was a rapper who was now very, 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 very famous, but hadn't released any music then. And his who name is Buster, Buster Rhymes. Oh! Right. right, so my buddy is saying, yeah, I'm going to, my, my rap name's Buster Rhymes. I'm like, oh, that's what? the name of Right. No, but we were just doing it as kids in the bedroom. There wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. Yeah. And no, so like, like he's rapping all these Buster Rhymes raps. That he's list, remember, learned off of his tapes. Yeah. And I'm writing the original raps and keeping up. Yeah. And my raps were every bit as good as his raps. And we were like doing this and rapping together and he'd bust his bit and as, as Buster Rhymes and I'll bust my, do rap my bit as Mr. C. But I think because he had such good rhymes, it forced me to up to be as good with my rhymes. So that was a real help. And about six months into this, when I'm, we're really getting it down, he's got, Rich, I've got a confession. I'm like, what's that? He said, these are not my lyrics. I'm not Buster Rhymes. It's a rapper in New York. I've just been using his lyrics to rap with you as we learn. And I'm like, I burst out laughing. I'm like, you crap. What are you doing? But it was a big help. And he was the more the DJ and I was more the rapper. So it worked. But for those, the, my first six months of writing lyrics, my inspiration was unbeknowingly Buster Rhymes. <laughs> because he, my mate's rapping Buster Rhymes lyrics. So I've got to keep up with that. It was crazy. And that was so that was a good start for me. It was a good way. It was a good way for me to keep get start at a good level as a as a writer, as a writer of rap. It's awesome because what's happening is you're getting great lyrics, mm-hmm. rap, rap lyrics, and you're competing with this guy to do yourself to become better. But yeah. yet, wait, wait, let's pull the curtain up. Bro, it's yeah. not me. That's that yeah. home. 
Yeah. And he was honest about it later on. It was for oh, him, it was yeah. a funny joke. It was like it was an in it was an in-joke. We weren't doing we were 16. We weren't out doing it in clubs. We was doing it was, we was in doing it in his bedroom. We were, I was a bedroom rapper and he was a bedroom DJ and we were 16 year old kids having fun. You know, How like right. Wait a minute. How does your friend this is another thing? Because I remember when we were kids, the hardest thing was just to afford to buy records. Where is he getting money to buy all this record, these collection records? Because that was a hardship for us back then. Yeah, it was a hardship for us too. Um, but, you know, it, 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 he got the, it was bit by bit. You know, pop, like we did like jobs as kids when we, we worked. We worked as children. Like I did, um, you know, uh, at nine, ten years, nine years old, I did a paper round. I was up at six in the morning delivering papers to people's houses before going to school to earn three pounds a week, you know, like when I was a kid. And that was what we did. And then when I got to 13, I used to do after school. I worked in a hardware store between uh, 4 and 7 p.m. for two, 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 uh, three hours every evening, Monday to Friday. And then all day Saturday I would work uh, in a hardware store. And, um, like, that would that, that got me a little bit of money. Uh, enough to buy a few records and Robert was doing the same sort of thing we 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 got by but you know it was like oh I've got I'm going to go and buy one record this week it's not like I'm going to go buy a ton of records which one record am I going to buy for £2.99 this week and oh that's an import that's £4.99 it's a bit rich for me oh, I can't, I'll wait for it to get an English release for £2.99 that's right <laughs> is a bit like you know we had these things so that that was how it was so you know the record collection that robert got was built up over two or three years from when we was 13 and it was just getting the the ones that were great on that album this compilation album that had a bunch on it good value you know like this album this sing this this single these mixes and the singles were always a little bit more of a, a, a luxury because you wouldn't get as much music for your money with a 12-inch with a single as you would for a full album, you know, because you get all those tracks. And, you know, we weren't DJing out. It was just home listening. So it didn't matter that the uh, the album was a lower press and a lower cut because we're listening, to them on, we're listening on a home hi-fi. It didn't matter, you know. So that was how he and, – and I wasn't really spending my money that much on records. I was spending it on weed. Yeah, so like, uh, it, it, uh, and I would always be like, you know what? I, I I bought my microphone. I've got my microphone. He's the DJ. He can buy the records, <laughs> and I get the odd record here and there. Oh, I like that. I'm going to buy that. Oh, yeah, I like that. I'm going to buy that. And my collection built up slowly, slowly, slowly. But it wasn't until I made that transition into being a DJ that I really started buying. But I would still buy the odd tracks that I like. One here, one there, one here, one there. As you do when you're a kid. Crazy, dude. This is exactly the life that we all lived in New York at the same time. Same thing. It's the same thing. It's amazing how, how that works out. Um, so, yeah, and it was, to have that sort of inspiration as a rapper was great. And then, and then once I'd done that first gig in Tenerife on holiday. I how, come many back days, from, how many times you performed at that spot? Seven times? Six times? Yeah, seven times. So you were already professional by the end of the week. You were yeah, pro. Yeah, damn straight. And then I was like, yeah, um, going to clubs. And then I started rapping um, with uh, various different people. Uh, there's a, there was a radio station in London called 
London Weekend Radio or LWR. I remember was, that. Yeah. Right. So this was one of the early stations as well. And um, one of the radio DJs on there was a DJ called Ron Tom. Yeah. And he's like, uh, he played soul, funk, disco, hip hop, whatever, every, all right across the spectrum of that. And he was like the original funky dread with the big dreadlocks, but shaved around the sides. And Ron Tom lived in the street next to me. Yeah. And so I knew him. And then he, and he's on the radio, and it's like, oh, Ron Tom's on the radio, great. And then and I, I like started hanging out with him, and then like you know when he heard me rap, yeah, it was like, yeah, Richie, come on, come and rap with me. So I started being his rapper, and we would go around all these gigs in London, and I would be his rapper. I became the rapper for the LWR Soul Syndicate, and uh, you know would be do all, all the LWR Soul Syndicate stuff, and it was a bit crazy because like I would be one of the only white guys there. It was very black and like I'd be involved. And sometimes I had a bit of jealousy and I'd have a bit of uh, resentment, you know, maybe people thinking it was cultural appropriation or whatever. And, you know, but I would go and I would rap. And, and if anyone got a little bit leery, my mate Ron Tom, six foot two Jamaican. And like, you wouldn't mess with him. He was a proper ragger. You know? He'd be like, yeah. what you want yeah. about <laughs> And if anyone come getting it, it'd be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was a bit of a hooligan myself as well. So I was never like, I'm like, fuck off. Do you know what I'm getting? Go on, get. But I was a bad, you know, I, I was a badass rapper. So that thing kept happening. And then I started, like, do, because I was with the LWR Soul Syndicate, I started to get to know the other LWR DJs and also started rapping with another one. His name's Jasper the Vinyl Junkie. And he was also best friends with another LWR DJ called Jazzy M. Jazzy M is one of the original, God, is like he did the first house music radio Thank show. You. Thank you. Clearly for everybody, because I said the same thing, because I met Jazzy in 88 and helped yeah. him get stuff from New York, that you said it correctly. He yeah. was the first what? He was the first radio DJ for house music in England. Uh, like easily for me, Jazzy M. Godfather. So, but then, so Jasper, who I was rapping with a lot more, he played soul, funk, disco, house, New York garage. He played it all. So you know, like, I, and I would ha go and hang out with him, and like, this is like 1985, 1986, 1985, and Ron Tom was a bit before that, 84. So you know, like, uh, now I'm hanging out with these DJs, and I'm playing, and. Uh, it wasn't, but I had an experience that was almost identical to Eminem on my with on the Mile High movie, but in London and many many years earlier. And um, I was with Jasper the Vinyl Junkie. We used to rap in different clubs, and he's going to to a, um, a hip hop club. He's going to play at a hip hop club with another DJ, hip hop DJ uh, called CJ Carlos. Yeah, so there's CJ Carlos and Jasper the Vinyl Junkie, the two DJs on this night. Then we're in the car and we're on the way, and it's in uh, in a, an area called Dalston in London. And it's a, at that time in the it's very hardcore, ghetto, black, rough, very rough area, you know, like ragger. It was all right for us. I mean, I lived only a mile and a half up the road. I'm used to that. I grew up in that environment. So for me, it's not a problem. But like, we go, we're on the way. And he's like, yeah, so Rich, there's going to be a rap competition at the club. I'm like, count me out. Like, he's like, what? I'm like, count me out. I'm not a battle rapper. I mean, I've got battle lyrics. I've written battle lyrics just in case it, 
it, I come up with something and I've, if someone attacks me and another rapper starts giving it, then I've got, I'm, I've got, I've got my toolkit. I've got my tools. I've got my lyrics, you know, I'm ready. So now he's like, yeah, there's this rap competition and I want you to get involved. I'm like, mate, not into it. I'm just coming and I'll just come and dance and have a laugh. And we're in this club and it's called the Four Aces. And it was a hardcore club. It later went on to become called the Labyrinth, yeah, which became a famous techno club like back in the late 80s. But it was before that, it was called the Four Aces. And um, we're in there and, uh, you know, like I'm in having a good time. I'm one of the only white guys in there, but I'm having a good time. See, I'm can, I ask, can I ask you something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because like I, I'm, I'm having the time. I could see the stylings. Was everyone wearing shearlings and kangles like at that yeah. era? Yeah. Yes. New absolutely. York, that was the tight yeah. shearling yeah. with the square yeah. park. Yeah. Kangles. Right. Yep. That whole thing. The shell tops. Adidas shell tops. This is 1985. That's about the Adidas shell tops. Yes. Yes. 1985. This was. Yeah, 1985, might have been early 80s, no, might have been 86, early Big gold, Yeah, big gold chains, you know, the uh, Volkswagen things, like, yeah. you know, like, well, the whole shebang. It was, you know, we did it the same as America, you know, it's the same Okay, thing. fair enough. Yes, so, right, so I'm in there and I'm dancing and, like, you know, enjoying the beats and uh, the rest of it, da, 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 you know, chatting up girls, as you do, da, da, da. and then all of a sudden, I, I've got CJ McIntosh, right, we're going to start the rap competition and the first rapper up is Mr. C. Oh. Well, I, I'm like, you know. Like, no, I'm like, woo, 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 woo. <laughs> so, like, you know, so I get up there, right, and I'm like, I'm like, I like I, all I, I'm not now being called. I can't not go because otherwise I'm shame some the shame of like you know being a coward. <laughs> so, so I've got Chris, to go. so Chris McIntosh says the first rapper is gonna be Mr. C CJ. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you know, like Jasper's up there laughing his ass off. They've said I bet he is. I would have been too. Absolute motherfuckers. They said because they up. knew in the car. That they set this up and gave no, you credit. He knows I said no, I'm not doing this. They Mr. said Carlos. no, he'll do it. He'll do it, man. He'll do it. Yeah. CJ Carlos made his own way. This is me and Jasper and a couple of other dudes are in the car. CJ Carlos is making his own way there. Yeah. So, like, so CJ Carlos comes over and says, Yeah, first rapper's Mr. C. So I get on the stage and, you know, like the only white guy there. So I'm going all beastie boys on their fucking asses. I'm going like aggressive. I'm getting beastie on their asses. And that's what I did. And I came in. My name is C and I came here to battle. And come in like no baby with a nappy and a rattle. I come about and I kick it hardcore. Make you motherfucking niggas just beg me for more. Hear the words, sucker, listen to what I say. I'm not here for fun. I'm not here to play. I rock your hardcore. Rock from my heart. And then and it just went off. The whole place. <sighs> Ah, screaming like like a, like a mosh pit, right? Jumping up and down like a mosh pit. Place went crazy. Yeah, it was mad. And you know, and then right after me, like everyone was like, "Yeah!" And right after me, there's three dudes came on, right, and started rapping. People's boom, throwing their like Ribena juice, cart their little box, Ribena <laughs> box juice boxes. Yeah, <laughs> and like, and like, and then the next one came on, and I, I won hands down. No one reached anywhere near the level of energy that I did. When I won the competition, I ended up with the hottest chick in the house. It was dope. 
<laughs> and that was a real, that was a, a massive thing. Like that was a proper, like that, that in like, you know, Eminem's Mile High, it was like the same kind of shit. Sweatbox. By, by, by 1985. Right. Sweatbox. Yeah. Underground. Yeah. And totally real. Like, here we yeah. go. Real, totally. it was that was crazy, and it was a big learning, a big experience for me. And it's funny because it wasn't really not much longer after that. I changed styles altogether. Like a year later, in 1986, you know, I was like, you know, I I, I, I want to move on. And then I started rapping on house music. Well, that's funny you say that because right around that time, Eric B and Rakim sample that paid in full. And those were the And everything started to get real magical sounding and musical. And the club scene was starting to take those records as part of the set with the electro dance music. Yeah, because well, Jasper would play electro, he would play disco, he would play hip hop. And like, you know, so, and I was always more, I was a disco music DJ. I liked it upbeat. Yeah. And when it started getting slower and slower, the hip hop and a bit more aggressive and a bit more like the lyrics started to become a bit aggressive, like talking derogatory about women and like. That's a little later. That's and, a little later. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still that 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 that's yeah, no, but later I'm talking about 85, 86 now. 86 I'm talking about now. So this yeah, is yeah. later. So by 86 it starts to get a bit more aggressive. And I'm like, you know what, this isn't me. I my style of rap is fun. It's about if I'm going, hey, oh, aggressive. Hey. Because that's the you know with, with the the whole rap scene, these people are expressing their li- their lives. They're living on the street in the projects. So I get that you know they're expressing their their culture, how they're growing up in the projects, and how they're growing up on the streets, and how they and and that wasn't me. I mean, I grew up in from the projects sure. of London, but my thing was more fun. It was more about having a good time. And I had all my reality lyrics. You know, I was inspired by The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So I had all my reality, I used to call them reality lyrics or party lyrics. And I had my two sets of lyrics that I would use. Um, So for me, like, you know, I got to this point where it started to get a little bit aggressive. And, uh, you know, I wanted to go more upbeat. And I thought, you know, and, and house music was just starting to show itself, 85, 86 House music just started to come through, and I, I was immediately into it. I was into electro big time. So house music is like a, a, an evolution of electro and disco in one thing. This is me all over, you know, like when things like Serious Intention came through, oh, or, uh, like or the Easy Street records and the early Jump Street records and, you know, Russ Brown, find a way, find a way. It started to make that crossover, you know, up, up, and Lola with Wax the Van. But when I heard Wax the Van, I was like, what is this? This is house. And it wasn't called house then. It was just called dance. dance That's music. how I remember it. They used to say R&B dance music because they didn't yeah, know how to absolutely. categorize R&B It wasn't dance. called house. But that, you know, that Wax the Van. Boom, 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 boom. It was house, you know. And that for, and I was hooked. And that was it. And that for I want now, I want to rap on that. Yeah, and then so this whole house thing started happening, and all of a sudden I heard the word Jack, you know, Jack in 1986, Jack, 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 Jackie Buddy. So I'm writing lyrics about Jack, yeah, you know, like and house. I started writing about house. Yeah, I started writing lyrics about house music and rapping them. And I was the only person 
in London or as far as I know anywhere in the world rapping on house music in 1986. And I went to uh, the Camden Palace, the legendary Camden Palace, and it was 1986. And uh, uh, the legend, uh, the one of the other godfathers of London, because there's a few, uh, or it's a hand, small handful, uh, Colin Favour, the legendary mm -hmm. Colin Favour. He was a house godfather, like proper, doing it in the gay clubs in 85, 86, like proper, right at the beginning. And, uh, right, so he was playing with a, a capital radio DJ, Chris Forbes, um, at the legendary Camden Palace um, in Camden, North London, so I could walk there, it was a mile from my home. And uh, um, I went in and I, like, they were like DJing, and I went up to the DJ booth and uh, I'm like, hey, Colin, uh, this must have been four. It was four or, or October '86, around that time. And um, I said, like, called the DJ over, and I'm like, "Hey, can I do a rap?" He's like, uh, "What do you mean?" I said, "Come here," and I started rapping in his ear. Yeah. Um, now this was actually no, this wasn't '86. This was this first time was '84, late '84. I did the same trick that I was doing on other people. Hey, it's late '84. Can I can I rap? I rapped in his ear. He's like, "Yeah, get on the mic." And I got on the mic in the Camden Palace and everyone went mad. Everyone went crazy. Like, there, a brilliant night. Huge club, 2,500 people. Everyone losing their shit, right? So that was great. I did that, did a bit of rap, got off. But then I went back again in 86, um, um, like early, it was early, very early 86. I went back again. I hadn't been there for just over a year. But now I'm, I want to rap on house music. So um, I go into the DJ, I go to the DJ booth again, and this time he's DJing with Eva Eddie Richards. Yeah, so it's Colin Favour and Eddie Richards, who's also one of the godfathers of house music from London. They're the three, but I, and Kid Bachelor is another. There's the, these are the ones that were there at the right in the very beginnings. Yeah. And so Eddie Richards and Colin Favour are playing hip hop, go go, disco. Uh, first wave, new wave, electro, house music, did all mixed up together because that was what it was back then. And um, I've gone back up and I've called Colin over. I said, do you remember me? He's like, no. I'm like, oh, I was here about a year ago and I was I rapped. And he's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. That was brilliant. I'm like, yeah, well, do you want me to get on again? He's gone, I'd love you to get on again. But but can you wait a little while? Because um, I'm, just playing, I'm playing house music at the moment and I, like, I'd have to slow it down and get into some hip-hop for you. I went, no, actually, um, I don't rap on hip-hop anymore. I rap on house music. And he's like, no, you don't. No one raps on house music. I said, I do. <laughs> rap no on house music. No one rap on house music, and I rap about jacking your body and about house music. And he's like, Really? I'm like, Yeah, and he knows I'm a rapper, he knows I've smashed it before, so he, he believes me. And I'm like, I said, What well, you got lined up? He's like, This, this brutal house by Nitro Deluxe, it just come out. I can hear the melody. Oh my god, that's groove to the melody. I get on the mic and I'm like, you know, and I start, you know, Jack, 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 Jackie, buddy, Jack, Jack, right. 
J-A-C-K, you'll be O-D-Y. Become a Jackie Bond because you're looking so fly. But me, Mr. C, on the M-I-C, make your Jackie body in the place to be. So just Jack, 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 Jack the groove. You ain't got nothing to prove, so make your body move. Only time you can rest against the wall is when you feel that your body is about to fall. Until that time, stay up on your feet. And I'll make your rocky body to the house music beat. And if I stop rocking, it won't be no choice. It will only be because I lost my voice. It's like that. The house rap inventor and all that. And that was how... And I the crowd that. must have went electric. Mind. Lost in mind. Eddie Richards is like, let's go in the studio. He's got his, just starting his bad records label. Colin Favor. Come to Kiss FM next week. Come on, come and rap for me on the radio. Right. And that was it. That was when I, that was like, I went into the studio with Eddie to make my first record. In 86, it was a bit later, in middle 86, late 86. Didn't get released until the summer of 87, August 87. That was my first release. And it wasn't a rap. If I had have done a rap on, on a house song, and that would have been my first release. And I could have even preceded that, because at one time I was rapping with Jasper the Vinyl Junkie at the Cricketers in Chertsey. It was one Sunday thing that he used to do. And Adonis come and done a PA. Yeah, right, in 86, like late 86. And Adonis was done his PA, and then he saw me rapping, and it blew his mind. And Adonis said, let's do something together. I'm like, well, when are you leaving? And he's like, tomorrow. Well, we're not going to be able to do anything together, are we? And he wanted to do something with me. So I would have, if I'd have done that thing with Adonis, and if when I went into the studio with Eddie Richards, I'd done a rap instead of a spoken word, it would, and that got released in August um, 1987. It would have been the first hip house record ever released in the world if I'd have done a rap instead of a spoken word. Before Tyree Cooper, before any of them? Before before Casey Flight. Casey, before, right. I say Casey yeah, Flight. Before, yeah. before M-Doc. It's percussion. It, 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 before then, it's yeah. It, was, it would have been the first hip house record ever released. But I didn't. I did a spoken word because the, the record that Eddie played me was very deep. He made this very deep house tune and it made me want to do something more profound. I was already a meditator at that time. And so I did a, a spoken word about the power of meditation and positive thinking and what you can achieve with that. And that was my very first record. Spoken word. Yeah. 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 I would have been the first, the very first um, hip house rapper release in the world, but it didn't happen. How did that record do for you at that time? And I sold about 6,000 records, which was really good for a deep underground house. And right. It was very good for a deep yeah. meditation type record. Yeah. yeah, it was on Bad Records, B-A-A-D, which was uh, Eddie's label. Um, yeah, he, he released Mac Attack, Art of Drums on there was the first release. This was the second release, and it was four different artists. There was me, there was Syndicate, there was Ian B, and uh, DJ T. He was a house music DJ on Kiss FM as well. So there, there, I was one of four tracks on this various artists EP uh, that got released in August 1987, and that was it. That was my first release. And, and it was at that point that, that when that was released, you know, I was like, you know what? I need to give up my day job. I was delivering milk. I was uh, doing a milk round, delivering milk to people's doorsteps. That was my real job. And uh, it's like, look, I'm gonna, I need to really dedicate myself now. And I don't want to just write vocals and be a vocalist. I need to make the music and be a DJ as well. So uh, that was when I started to become, that was when I did, gave up my day job to become a DJ. Page 125, as we turn to that chapter now, it's a very important yeah, one. You should say page, because the song was called Page 67. 
<laughs> the first vocal, the, the spoken word thing I did. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so let's get this correct. So you did the spoken word. You were baptized by fire between getting pulled every which way because now all of a sudden they all see your skills and everybody wants a piece of that. Like Brittany says, everybody wants a piece of me. You yeah. know what I mean? So now yeah. it's the tone to say, I can actually really make some serious coins from this and i can take this seriously but i got to be in it to win it heavy and i was continuing to rap like i was the resident mc at a club called raw and that was in the ymca in tottenham court road yeah and the dj the rest of the dj and promoter of raw was the legendary dave durrell who did pump up the volume mars yeah, so I was rapping with him. Pump up the volume, pump up the volume. Which is the first record to have all these samples and nobody cleared, and everybody came after this guy. Yeah, right. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Came after him. So I was rapping. I was rapping there, like rapping on house music, rapping on that sort of stuff. So I became this house rapper. I got known as the house rapper. I was the first person rapping on house music anywhere in London, and I made it my own. <clears throat> moved away from the hip-hop scene altogether, embedded in house music, and then became a house music DJ. Started buying up all the records. Like, you know, I got gigs straight away because by this time, I'm already very well known in the nightclub scene as the rapper Mr. C. So I'm able to say to the promoters, hey, how about having me DJ? And they're like, what, you DJ as well? I'm like, here's a mixtape. And they'd listen to the mixtape and go, fucking hell, that's really good. Mixing's excellent. Yes, you can warm up. So there I am, warming up, 87, late 87, early 88, getting my warm-up sets in, late 87. And so that was my start as a DJ. But because I knew everyone, I had an automatic in. And they were like, oh, Mr. C's DJing. Mr. C's on the flyer as a DJ, not a rapper. What's going on there? Now everyone's curious. So now I'm starting to get mixtapes out there, and people are seeing that I'm playing the most badass house music. And I'm mixing it up like a, like a proper mixer. You know, because obviously as a DJ, you know, as a rapper, I know all the breaks. I know where you're meant to start the mix. I know where you're meant to end the mix. I know. And it, for me, I learned to mix on a belt drive with no pitch control. So when I get on a tech mix, it's butter. It's absolutely easy. It's so simple. It's like butter, mate. It's like boom. And that, that was how the DJing started. I was able, I did my own night. Um, I did a couple of parties in a, like in a council house, in council flat. Like, and like the whole council estate was in there doing these like all night parties. I did two of those and it got, we got in trouble on the second one. And then I moved that into a club at the beginning of in February, 1988. And that was called fantasy. So I started my own night called fantasy in February, 1988 in a club called the HQ in Camden lock in North London. And it was a small club held a couple of hundred people and it was a Monday night and it was house acid techno and i'm i believe that february 1988 it would have been the first non-gay house music club rave club in london i believe so and i got my buddies eddie richards and colin favor and kid bachelor all to play with me as you do <laughs> hey i'm doing this night and they're like i'm down yeah yeah i'm down so here, I can anyway uh, these are my buddies these are my yeah. homies so Next thing you know, I'm down. I'm there. So, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a new DJ. I'm creating my own parties to DJ and getting established See. DJs to play with me. And that's how I was able to get in as a DJ. Is this a picture of 
there's kid. No, that's, that's, like, that's Curtis. That's that's that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's Mr. Cashmere. That was at the end. Uh, that, later on, yeah, in the second anniversary. So that would have been ninety. That's too late. I was thinking, uh, I, at first, when I saw the picture, really small, it looked like Kid because Kid would do don't that. Look like, they do look alike. They look very both much like Kid. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they do look alike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those that know who Kid Batcher is, he later mixes a record called Bang Bang Your Mind on Warriors Dance. It becomes one of the biggest house records of that. Yeah. And he did all the remix, No Smoke. No Smoke, Coral Coral. And But also his own band, Bang the Party. Really shabadi. All the time, dum, 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 really all, you guys, all of you from that lot became in your own way huge. Yeah, it was yeah. all of you at the same time, all like a flower, all you know, each part yeah. of you. You went your way, kids doing his thing, evil Eddie yeah. Richards doing his thing, Colin yeah. Farris doing his thing. Each yeah. all of you had become very successful at that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. As this thing is, as this this thing is exploding. Yeah, and because because there was a, a, like some really good DJs right at the very beginning that were doing that. So all those that you mentioned, I want to give props to some more DJs as well. Please People do. like Frankie Fonsec. Oh. Um, like you know, very, very. I mean, you never hear much about Frankie Fonset. It's almost like uh, people have forgotten about Frankie Fonset and his Like I you know, as he, he bought for black market, he bought the records and he was selling them. And he's a good DJ as well. He played a lot of good records. You know, he's a great DJ. Another one, even less known, Frankie Valentine was another one, one of the originator boys here, and he doesn't get any props. People and people are like who Frankie Valentine. You know, like these people deserve to be mentioned, you know, from, from the ones that were right there at the beginning in 1984, 85, 86, 87. Um, the, obviously, you have the more commercial side with DJs like um, Paul Oakenfold and Danny Rampling were doing their more, it was a bit more white what they were doing. The ones all that I've mentioned is all a bit more black, a bit more urban sounding house music. So that's side. Yeah, which was what we was into. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, I wanted to give, like, you know, the Frankies, Frankie Valentine, Frankie uh, Fonset, a, a little prop as well because they, they were all... Deserve it. Then also Eon, E&B. E&B was another one. Eon. And then there was DJT was another dude that, you know, was one of the early 87 on Kiss FM. So there was a few people doing proper house music from New York and Chicago and Detroit. Like, get there was a, a dozen of DJs of us of us together that were really pushing that in by in '88 that underground sound of house and we kept and then it it completely blew up into this culture and the music come from America it was black dance music and Hispanic dance music from New York um, Chicago and Detroit and that was what our scene was on uh, but the culture comes from us we made the culture oh That's yes. What, that's like rave culture, acid house culture. We made that. That's us. And let me give you some DJ I've mentioned now, we made the culture. And up in the north, they had it as well. There was obviously um, one another originator that I've got to give props to, Graham Park. Graham Park was there right at the beginning. I listened to him in 1986 in, a, in the warehouse in Nottingham playing house music. Yeah, so Graham Park was another one. Mike Pickering, uh, that what they were doing at the Hacienda. 
at the, at, was at the same time. So what was happening in London, there was, another, there was a thing going on in Manchester, a much smaller scene because Manchester was only based around one club, whereas London was based around lots of different things because it's a much bigger city in London. So while we had all these early parties in warehouses and stuff like that and clubs like the Camden Palace and Pyramid and Busby's and Mud Club and da -da -da, all these different clubs in 85, 86, 87, they had the Hacienda in Manchester. So you have to give those guys props as well from England. But together... <laughs> collective of djs made rave culture happen we made we invented it and exported it back to america i know but i will say this without having you guys championing all these sounds all of us would never had the careers we've had i don't know i disagree i think it would have happened anyway and if it wasn't us it would have been someone else because it was right after that, you know, uh, uh, you know, 88, when it all blew up, you had people like Dimitri in, in Amsterdam, not Dimitri from Paris, Dimitri no, from Amsterdam. <clears throat> brilliant, absolutely brilliant house music DJ. Doing it in Holland as well. He was one of the first on the mainland of Europe. You have to give props to those guys. No, no, uh, no, no. that those DJs, we're talking about, the culture of the magazines and yeah. and help me to blow this up worldwide. Yeah, yeah well, I'm saying if we didn't, someone else would have. Because oh, I, still, I believe the music is, is still great. It holds yeah. its own. And the culture would have come from the music. You know, you have to bear in mind at that same time, 86, 87, and then especially 88, ecstasy tablets became available. And that was the spark that ignited the music was the was the uh was the wood the music was the wood of the fire the, the ecstasy and like let's call the fire rave culture the wood was the music the spark was the ecstasy the mdma and that was like bam all of a sudden you've got this brand new music from the streets from an underground culture, black urban culture, which was what we was all about in England anyway, from disco and electro. You've got this brand new music, and then you've got this little pill that makes all that music sound amazing. And you're like, all of a sudden, everyone is, I see, And it was just, it was just bedlam. It kicked off, you know? Um, so, you know, there's, I, I, I've got to also mention the Boys Own crew in London. Oh, yes. And I need to mention um, a couple of others that were right there in 88 that would made a lot of difference. Fabio, Groove Rider, they were more the South London boys, and they were playing house music, um, jumping Jack Frost, these all drummer bass DJs now, playing house music, LTJ Bookham playing house music. These were playing in house in 88 as well. So these were, again, DJs that helped it come through. Carl Cox, right at the beginning, always. You know, there's lots of DJs. And this, as this, as our culture grew, all these DJs were just like, all doing fantastic work and breaking the scene for us in London and, and, and beyond. So as you're seeing, and this is all around you, where are you going? As this is all budding around you, because we know, well, we know slowly you're blowing up in your own. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm blowing up. Like you know, I started DJing in uh, doing my own parties of DJing in, in the fall of '87. By um, summer '88, I'm one of the biggest DJs in London. Six months later, 
I'm one of the biggest DJs in London. I'm playing warehouse parties. I'm playing clubs. Um, I, you know, I play in 1988. I'm DJing in Berlin. I'm DJing in like 89 Amsterdam. You know, so I blew up straight away as a DJ. And you know, um, I want. It took me a while to get another release going. Uh, I was waiting on Eddie Richards to get the next release going, whereas I should have just done it myself with someone else. But that kind of held me back a little bit as a as a as a, um, a, a vinyl artist or a recording artist that held me back a little. But then um, um, at the end of '89, um, I was invited to come and uh, do perform a rap with this this band that was starting to blow up. Um, and this band started out as like a, a psychedelic rock band in Scotland and um, moved down to London in 1988 to discover Acid House and change their blueprint from psychedelic rock to Acid House. And the band was named The Shaman. And the manager, Charles Kosh, he moved down to London to get the band a recording deal and a publishing deal. And... Um, uh, when he got down to London, stumbled across us doing acid house in illegal warehouses and was blown away, got straight onto the band and said, but you're a psychedelic band. You need to check out this acid house stuff that's going on in London. It's mental. It's absolutely batshit crazy. They came down as psychedelic heads, like psychedelic rockers uh, who liked their electronic side of it and went, Whoa, yes. Never went back, squatted, stayed, became part of the community. And then it was the following year, and I DJed for, like, the, the manager, he put on a, his own little raves because he liked it, and he asked me to DJ. So I played for him before the band even came down. I played for the manager at an illegal warehouse party in Whitechapel. And, like, so it, then when the band moved down and they started making music, um, I'd heard of them. I'd heard the name The Shaman, and uh, Charles got in contact with me again in 89, mid 89. And you said, there's this band, um, they're doing a song and they would like you to do a rap on it. I said, what's the name of the band? He's like, oh, The Shaman. Oh, I, I, really? A good name. You know, I'd read the book, The Yakai Way of Knowledge by Carlos Castaneda back in 85. So I'm into shamanism. You know, I'm into taking LSD. I'm into taking mushrooms. I'm into psych the psychedelic world. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's a great name for a band. I'm like, what's the song called? It's like, Move Any Mountain. I'm like, well, that's me. I've, you know, I've already done a song about what you can do with meditation and the power of positive thinking. This is me all over. I've been practicing this since I was a kid. Practice, well, since I was 17, positive thinking and meditating and making things happen for me. I'm like, yeah, this sounds like me. And I, they play, he sent me the track. He sent me the track and I thought, well, it's a bit white. It's very white alternative. It's not house. Do you know what I mean? But I know that... Problem. Is it a problem or not a problem for you? It was a bit of a problem at the time. So how did you handle it? What did you do? Well, I think the, the name of the band and the nature of the song itself persuaded me to do it. It's metaphysical. Yeah. And when you're looking at it, it's a metaphysical yeah. way. Yeah, you know what? I, knew, I knew that I could add to this song in a big sure. way with my rap you know like on move, on move any mountain i knew my rap would be big yeah and like so <clears throat> i knew it could work and then uh, then when i heard that paul oakenfold was doing the mix down on it <clears throat> i was like okay well if paul oakenfold's doing the mix he's playing house and stuff i know it's going to be banging he's playing Balearic and all that i know it's going to be a banger i'm going to do this project i'm going to do it and i said i'll do it Right? But only on condition you let me do my my own house music remix of it. And they said, yeah, okay, deal, done. So I did my the C-mix, C-mix dub 
two mixes, house. So my mixes were the house mixes. It wasn't on the original release. It was on the release, second release. And there ended up being loads of different remixes, releases of Move Any Mountain. In fact, there was a whole album called Progeny, Progeny, with 19 remixes of Move Any Mountain on one album. <laughs> it was like crazy. Um, so that was, so I did that rap. And um, it and, and did the remixes, and that helped to get me back into the recording artist side of things. Uh, right after that, uh, that, that so my, after I put my my remix came out in late in 1990, it became a cult song in 1990. It got re-released again in 1991 and became a pop song. So and that was when I started to become a pop star. But before that, I was lucky enough to remix some other stuff, like I remixed um, Eyes by Midi Rain, which was a really beautiful remix that I did. Uh, very proud of that. And that was me starting to really become an artist, a producer and an artist. Holy smoke. And then, of course, you go from street level to now pop level. <laughs> like that. <laughs> it's yeah. how, and how drastic is that change for everyone? Drastic. Uh, drastic. Like, you know, well, when Move Any Mountain blew up, it was like, okay, that was 91. Um, and it, it blew up summer, summer 91. It was already a cult hit in clubs through all 90. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So wait, were you driving a Ford Mondeo and they had a Rolls Royce next week? I mean, was it like, is it like that uh, No. I mean, yeah, I was driving the, the piece of shit car. Yeah, <laughs> like I had a, a, a Vauxhall Vectra. Yeah, yeah, I was driving a piece of shit car, but I didn't spend my money then on on stuff like that. Like, what well, soon? Like, so I put that basically. I, I put that record out, and then um, it it was nine. That was ninety one, and I didn't really earn much money from that. You know, I earned a little. It wasn't a great deal. You know, I was just a guest rapper on a small percentage. You know, and then the remix was really just for the love, just to get my name out there. I didn't care about the money. I just wanted to be on the. Wanted to be on the record. Like you can have the remix, the band. You know, I still get my little percentage as the rapper, as the artist. I get my little two percent as the guest singer, which is nothing. It was a bit pocket money, you know. Um, so, but that was that. But then uh, after Move Any Mountain uh, was when we was recording the video in Tenerife, um, Will Sin, uh, Will Sinnott, and Colin Angus both asked me to join the band as a full member because they wanted to consolidate the band with a rapper and a female vocalist as well. So I'm like, okay, yeah, all right, I'm in. Count me in. And they, uh, that was when I joined the band. I said, you know, but like, I'm joining the band. You know, um, I, I want to, you know, I, I, I want a, he a heavy, I want a really heavy influence on the drums. You know, it's got to go a bit more house got to go a bit more techno and house for me and they're like yeah we love it come on get involved get involved but then sadly we lost wilson and um he drowned right after the video shoot he was taking a little break on the next island from tenerife uh funny tenerife again which is where i first dj oh, emceed but that was where we recorded the move any mountain video it was in tenerife uh, mount t yeah, and so he went to the uh, La Gomera, which was the next island along, and was swimming. Um, he'd already been warned by his girlfriend not to go into a certain area because of the strong undercurrents. She was a stronger swimmer than him, and he ignored her and went into the stronger area, and he got caught by the riptide and dragged under and drowned. Very, very, very sad. Very, very sad. And the band was going to stop at that point, um, but we had Colin Angus, the founding member of the band. He had... 
and the governor, he had a barrage of mail from fans. Please don't stop the band. It's such an important band because we're an information band. We're talking about society, society issues, human evolution, awkward states of consciousness. Like the band is a psychedelic band. And now the shaman is the only dance band in the world talking about these subjects. You know, so it's a very important band. All our songs are about what states, being positive, moving any mountain, making it mine. You know, all these things, you know, a mega amiga from the beginning to the end, before I came along, it's a psychedelic information band. And that turned into a dance band, but still psychedelic information. We were the only band doing that. So it was very important as a band to continue. And because of the fans and the letters and everything else, Colin's like, you into continuing? And I'm like, yeah. Um, he also asked Plavka, because she done sung Hyper Real, Plavka Lonak. She sung Hyper Real, um, and he asked her to stick around, but she said no, she was off. And she went on to do that big track with Jam and Spoon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, and, and then we had to consolidate our band with another female singer, and we was able to get Jaleesa Anderson. We worked with another uh, girl, Cheryl, who was great for like live, and we was going to record with her, but there was. She was a good singer, but there was something not quite powerful enough. But then we met Jaleesa Anderson, who's this powerful soul disco singer you know, from America, amazing singer, and she just blew our minds. She was like, okay, this is going to be our singer. And she sung Love, Sex, Intelligence, and Forever People. And we made the Boss Drum album, which had Ebenezer Good, Boss Drum, Coming On Strong, all those hits on the album. So that was how that went. But sadly, we lost Will. And, um, you know, that was a really big, big, big part of the band's history. And, you know, without Will, without his effort and without what he brought to the table, the shaman would never have been the band that they were and I probably would never have got involved. So a lot of gratitude. And, you know, for Colin and Will both to want me on to become a member of the band was well, a they was saw, Brother, they saw talent. They knew what they were getting with you. You're yeah. coming with a whole different angle, raw talent, street worthy, and yeah. you're bringing that. What what was and missing? I, I, I you know, I'm, I know I'm good at music. I, you know, I'm good at finding the chords and the progressions that I want, and the melodies and the bass lines, and my drum writing skills are proper. You know, I've got some proper drums on me, Hang and on it's like, wait, wait, you missed to tell me that part. Are you musically trained, or you just have a good ear? No. I have a good ear. When I was 13 in school, I did like you have your in high school, you have like you, you guys in America, you have junior high and high. We don't, we just have high school. And when you leave primary school at 11, you go into high school and you do five years of high school. And at the end of the third year of high school at 13, 14, you pick what options you want to take for the last two years to study for O levels and GCSEs, etc. before you then go on to college. So um, I didn't pick music. Yeah. And this music teacher called my mum to the school. Yeah. And broke down in tears saying, you have to make him pick music. Like I've been in this school for 13 years. This is a school of 1200 boys. Yeah. A lot of boys in that school. I've been here 13 years and your boy is only the second natural talent that I've had. You have to make him pick music. Oh, you could just play by ear the recorder, the piano, like, you know, and I didn't. And my mum said, I can't make him do anything he doesn't want to do. The teacher broke down crying because I didn't pick music. So I was a natural and I didn't pick music. And I, you know, I thought I was going to be an architect when I was 14. I was into technical drawing and art and I'm not an artist. So I was into the art side of drawing and technical drawing. And I thought I would be an architect 
That's what I thought I was at that time. And I picked, instead of picking music, I picked metalwork, woodwork and carpentry and architectural drawing, technical drawing. That was because that was what I thought I was going to do. I, you know, if I'd have known, I would have picked music. And it was only probably a year later that I ended up, I didn't even go to school anymore because I was bored with it. I was truant from school and uh, huffing glue and being causing trouble on the streets in the projects in the council estates. That was my upbringing. So I didn't even go, I didn't graduate high school. I wasn't trained in anything. It was all just natural. Wow. That's I see see people how we find out the true house story. Mm. There it is. Yeah. yeah. That's real. That's that's real yeah. talk now. Yeah. I can play, I can play chords. I say, oh, that's a nice chord. And I always my my because I, you know, I was brought up on funk and soul and disco, I naturally went more for the minor chords than the yes. major chords. So that was my thing. I like the deeper, the bit deeper, the bit more melancholy, the bit more jazzy which is all based on minor jazz fifths, minor jazz sevenths. And, uh, you know, I liked that sound. I liked the weirdness of that chord. So that was my preference in music. And it was all by ear. I'm not musically trained in any way. Um, I didn't do study. I didn't go to college. I didn't do any of that. Yes, you did. The street. The street, yeah. Street college. That's the college. You learn on the job in the street. And that's, I tell people that's, as, as it's how you it's what you extract from the street and expunge yes. it and make part of you absolutely so, so apparently you know, you're smart for your own good when you were a young lad that's yeah. that's something to me i actually was like it's funny because like when i was in junior school at 10 the last because junior school we had infant school junior school high school junior school is four years from eight seven to eleven yeah. And by the time I got to my fourth year of junior school, I wasn't doing the classwork with the other kids. I was helping my teacher mark the books. In the first year at six, six and seven, in the first year of junior school, all the other kids are reading these little books. This is Peter and Jane playing with a ball and reading the Times. So I was a natural gift. Like when I was 10, I won an art competition for a painting that became a poster across the whole of my borough of Islington, uh, but as a, with a campaign not to drop litter, to keep Britain tidy. And I, my, my painting became the poster. So I was an artist as a kid. I, had, I was very gifted, very, very gifted child. Like I said. Very naughty child, very mischievous, always in trouble, but I was very gifted. Ahead of your time. Which leads yeah. us to believe now it makes total sense why you would be ahead of everyone else. You already had it instilled in you to see the next parts of what's coming down the road. And that's a gift. A lot of people don't understand that. You yeah. are naturally born that way. Yeah. It's not something you can learn. So you're able to, it's like, I use this, it's like being able, if you saw bushes in front of you, okay? You have the the vision to see right through it to know what's on the other side. Well, most people say, no, that's bushes. You say, no, 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 no. Behind here yeah. is all this here for you. I'm definitely a visionary. Oh, yeah. And is that yeah, many? I, I mean, it was always like, you know, when I wanted to rap on house, I knew what was coming with house music. I knew what was going to happen before it blew up. I knew that house would be this phenomena. Like when I made my record, page 67, I knew that the beats were empowering. I knew that the house music beats were altering our brainwaves. 
from their normal beta state into their alpha and theta states, thus releasing serotonin neurons. I've researched that and what that percussive sound did in throwing people into like a transcendental trance-like state on a dance floor. And I knew that I could manipulate that with words. And uh, that was why I was very excited to do my first song about meditation and positive thinking, because I knew that these words would actually hit people you know i remember a year after and i had this woman say come up to me in ibiza and say ah oh, that record you did page 67 has changed my life i'm now a meditator and i'm thinking about things positively you know and that for me was the goal it was like yes if i can influence people to change their lives and use meditation or positive thinking in their lives. That was for me the, the, a massive, massive plus, to be able to give people information on this music that can help their society and their lives. And that I've been doing that ever since. I still do it today. It's almost like a holistic way of living, basically, to be a musician. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Very holistic. Okay, moving on then. Now we have success. You are now doing Top of the Pops and all these wonderful things. The 90s begin. Madness. That change. Oh, my God. Uh, the first thing, the, th the first time that it really hit me, um, because we did Move Any Mountain, and that got popular in 91. And then in 92, we released the first single off of the Bosch Drum album, which was Love, Sex, Intelligence. Uh, that got to number four in the pop charts. Move Any Mountain got to number five or four in the pop charts. And then Ebenezer Good came out. And Ebenezer Good went in at number seven in the first week and then went to number one the second week. And there it sat. And like I, this, this first week it's at number one. I've got all my hair bleached white and stuff like that. And I wear all my sort of black fashion gear. And I'm on the tube on the underground on subway in London going to the West End. It's only a 15-minute train journey, tube journey, into the West End to go record shopping. I'm going to go to the record store, buy a load of tunes, you know, I'm, you know, and by this time I'm a big established DJ now, by 92 I'm huge. So I'm going record shopping and I'm sitting, I'm on the train on the Northern Line and uh, uh, all of a sudden we get to um, Euston Station, no, no, is it King's Cross? King's, Euston, no, Euston Station and all these Manchester United fans get on the train, the hundreds of them. They've come from down from Manchester. They've got off their train. They all pile on the train. And one of them's gone, he's a good, he's a good. And they're all, they're all looking at me. And now the whole train is going, he's a good, he's a good, he's a good, he's a good. All pointing at me on the train. I'm like, fuck it. Now, I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me. And it was like, oh, yeah. I got up, I got off on the next station, which was Warren Street. I'm like, see you later, guys. I'm out of here. And I learned a big lesson that day. All of a sudden, I'm really famous. I got off at Warren Street. Now I'm noticing it because before I wasn't even paying attention. I've got my walkman on. I'm not even really paying attention. Now I'm seeing everybody looking at me and pointing at me. And I'm like, walking up the street. So from that day, that was the day where I was like, I'm no longer incognito. I can't just walk up the street anymore. That From that day. Because I wasn't even thinking about it. Now I've got like the next day. Baseball cap, sunglasses, jeans. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not wearing my fashion gear. Next, the, you know, like when I'm on the street, I've got to be in, and I'm still getting people doing double takes, even though I've got a baseball cap on and glasses. I'm still getting double taking because now I'm number one. How that television changes your life so they see you on that telly. Oh my God. 
uh, it's just it's like look at, it, look, at, look, 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 look at the hot drive he was with the with the <laughs> look at him look at him look how hot he he's hot right now so let's go back to that again let's you know what i'm saying so that's like the rolling stone picture here we go the yeah, guy who <laughs> was at the sweaty club is now a heartthrob in a sense yeah yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and for for both the celebrityness and, and, and the gay community as well, for both the straight and gay community. That oh yeah, no, I'm saying this: the celebrity part has a funny way of changing things. How you're viewed, it does. It does. Everyone changed their view, and people that I, you know, I still got my same friends that I grew up with. I still got those same friends that I grew up with as a kid. Yeah, because but, they see you as a guy. Well, no, but they started to treat me differently. What? Sudden, they started to treat me a bit different. Oh, he's a pop star now. And so they started to treat you a little bit different, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of green eye, a little bit about he's got to bring us in, a little bit. Of, they started to treat me different. Yeah. And then I, if they're treating me different, I'm going to treat them different back as a cause and effect. And I fell out of a few people because, you know, like people start saying, oh, yeah, he's getting up his own ass. I'll go and knock on their door. What are you fucking talking about? What are you talking about? Talking about me, you can't. I can't knock on their door. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm still ghetto. You know what I mean? If you, well, you to, and that was a thing. And I because, lost because they watched you on an interview on the telly, probably yeah. saying what you were saying, and they're probably at home screaming, that's that same prick we hung out with from the well, schoolyard. Who the hell does he think he is? My mates that I was still hanging out with, getting a bit green away. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So we had a bit of that, and it, it wasn't good. But, you know, it, we got over it pretty quickly. Uh, you yeah, because you said it was straight. You were actually everyone's yeah. face. Yeah, yeah well, one of my, my mates are being a bit some – some of my mates are being a bit funny. I've also got new mates that were supportive of me. Uh, there was one guy, uh, Paul Francis. Uh, he became DJ Unique, uh, and his best friend, Lyle, amazing paul and lyle they were there for me a couple of black dudes from london and they were there they, when all my mates were being a bit weird they were stepping up and going oh show respect show respect yeah he's but he's done Look this. He's, he's show respect to the in. man show bringing people in a great picture that's that's me djing uh, underground in ibiza in like i'm just saying but show respect to the man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, show, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like, they were there for me, those guys. And, uh, that whole, the whole situation actually gave me my first ever depression, which was in like, you know, late 92, early 1993. I had a, a six-month depression. The whole thing really got me down, the arguing, the falling out, the losing friends. Like, it really hit me hard and put threw me in a hole. Let me ask this question correctly then. You're on a high yeah. with success in the business. Yeah. But at the same let's talk about a seesaw effect. Yeah. At the same time, the high, there's a super low, a euphoric low happening with the people that you felt were the closest to you. My, my family that grew up fam in the council estates. How the hell do you deal with this? What did you do? I just, um, I just carry. I let them get on with it. I let let them just do whatever it was because you know I, I always included everybody. 
in everything you know like people that i grew up with went on to become djs dj stick hijacker who's laggy like uh femi b like people that i'm hanging out with i bring i'm bringing unique who stood by me you know i'm bringing them in these are all becoming djs now i'm bringing them in i'm bringing them into my gigs i'm putting them on at my parties i'm doing so i did open doors for those people but there were some people there was a that period of green eye that really got that pushed me under and it was very difficult to deal with. But it was Paul and Lyle that helped me through those hard times. Even my mixing got a little bit dodgy. I was doing, my mixing wasn't as tight as fuck as normal. It affected me in a big way. You know, it was like really a bit weird. You know, like I was doing baggy, a bit baggy mixes and, you know, I wasn't myself. I was in a really weird place. And it took me a good six months to snap out of that. And then- Were you that- kind of recluse too? Were you be- becoming more recluse like to yourself, uh, staying away from everyone? During no, this no, no, not at all. I'm a very social creature. I love my friends. I love to be with people. I love to be out. I love to be in the middle of it. And that was especially then as a youngster in my early 20s, uh, mid-20s, I wanted to be in the middle of everything. So, no, I'm very social. And even though I didn't know I was in a depression, I didn't know it was depressed. I didn't know what it was. I'd never experienced it before. So I kept going through that. I kept DJing. I kept, you know, I was smoking a lot of weed as well, like a hell of a lot of weed, um, you know, taking a lot of ecstasy anyway. So, you know, was it just like, you know, drug come downs? We all know that, you know, two days after taking ecstasy, we got the blues day, Tuesday, you know, and it's like, so is it just that? And, you know, but it affected me. It affected me in a big way. And it took me a good while to snap out of that. And that was my my first depression in 93. And thankfully, I didn't suffer another one until 2017. In between, you open up a club. You do so much in between those depression years. There's also good times, too, in between. Yeah. You opened probably one of the best clubs in the world. Yeah. London with one of the best sound systems I remember playing on. So I could say for sure that was what happened there. Yeah. You did a lot of things in those, you know, we say, I was depressed. Okay. You weren't depressed yeah. for but, too yeah. long. Also, look, I, and it was, I just got paid as well at the end of 82. So now I've got money. But 92. 92. Because, yeah, because now, like, now I'm actually a partner of The Shaman and I'm a songwriter of The Shaman and I'm a beats. I'm a, so I'm getting publishing royalties. I'm getting artist royalties. So in all of the, and we've just had a, a big album when the royalties came from that album at the end, you know, you get paid at the end of June and the end of December within 90 days. So by the end of, at the end of, de, at the end of December, I got paid for the early bit of the year. So all of a sudden I've got a little bit of money and then at the end of December, I get, you know, so that bit of money that I got from the first lot of sales from the album, I didn't spend it on myself. I always said, like, um, uh, I want to start my own record label. I had this name come into my head in 1988 called Plink Plonk. And I said, one day that's going to be my record label. I'm going to call it Plink Plonk Records. I was out of my mind in front of the speakers and Kid Bachelor was playing and he played a, um, a track by Lil Lewis. Uh, and like, bong, 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 bong. And it was going plink plonk, plink plonk. And I was like, oh, plink plonk, that's the name of the song. Uh, the girl that I was with put it on a banner, plink plonk. I knew that that would be my record label. So when that first lot of money come through, I set up a recording studio, filled it up with amazing gear so that my mates can come into the studio and learn how to make music for free. And if it was good enough, I could put it out on my record label, plink plonk. Uh, 
And that was what I did with my first money. So I didn't spend it on myself. I spent it on the community and I put the money into the community. And that was what, what I did with all my money. I didn't buy a, a, a flash car until I opened the end in 95, 96. I got myself a Saab. Which isn't that flash. It's not a like you know. Well, compared it's, to the to the to the other car that you had, it is flashy. It was, yeah, it was flash compared to the Vauxhall work that I had. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, come on, dude, that's a big upgrade for the Vauxhall. Yeah, so, you know, and I always said, anything that I make from pop music, I'm going to put it back into the scene and back and develop because I had to break break through the side door. Yeah, I couldn't. I wasn't given an open door. I had to break my way in and hustle and hustle to get in. Well, now I've got a community of people around me, of talent, of DJs, of people that want it and are hungry for it. So I'm able to start start my own record label. And I also got some friends and people that I know who were famous to make songs, but said you're not allowed to use your real name. Everyone's got to use a different name. So some of the early releases I had, um, Bullet, which was one half of Bang the Party. Um, I had Rolo McGinty from the Wooden Tops record under the name Pluto. I had Derek Carter record under the name uh, Tone Theory. I had, my nickname was Mantrack. Everyone had a different name, so nobody could judge. And then the new boys that were coming in, Megalon, Wild West, Stranger, well, Stranger wasn't a new boy. He was uh, Ian Tregoning, the engineer for Yellow, was the Stranger. So I'm getting like, so it doesn't matter whether you're someone like who's a, like, been around doing music or someone who's new and learned. There was no judgment on whoever, who was these artists. It's all unknown names. So every release, amazing packaging, amazing music, new names. Nobody knew who any of the artists were. And we kept it a secret. We're not telling you who any of these artists are. And that was the beginnings for Plink Plong. And I put all my money into that. And I didn't keep, like I said, I didn't buy a house, didn't buy a flash car, just put my money in. As I promised, if I said, if I make money from pop, I'm going to develop the underground with it. I'm going to put it back into the music, back but into I the underground. It. And that's what I did. And that's what I did. And, you know, I, at the last of my, remain, my remaining money from The Shaman, I put into the end to make the end happen. And I was still living in rented accommodation. I didn't buy a house. I opened the end nightclub instead. It weren't about me. It was about the community and doing something for underground dance music. And I'm still doing that today. Okay, so now I know in, in London you have this thing called the firms and the security firms and stuff that control these, these clubs. Because I know that because I remember working with one of the firms, you know, on a record. <laughs> That that you know the hooligan firms that so you open up the end, yeah, and you're in the center of London doing this. Yeah, what kind of troubles this part to bring to you? Because I know there's mafia. Well, we call the firms. It's it's, it's similar yeah, to mafia, mafia. Yeah. mafia. It's English no, mafia. I, I, we had a little trouble, uh, but not with the, the regular mafia. Not one of the regular firms. Um, I'm already known. Uh, in London, people know me. Um, you know, I've got mates. Some like I'm a football fan, and you know, I was involved a little bit as a teenager and a bit of hooliganism. And you know, I've got my mates, and you know, like all the all the like, you know, I'm a Chelsea fan, and the chill some of the Chelsea boys know me, and all the Arsenal boys know me because I was brought up with them. And you know, some of the gangsters in North, all the North London gangsters, like um, and my friends. I grew, I grew up with and went to school with, you know, this is my peeps, my peeps. So I was kind of protected, you know, um, there was gangs, gangs in East London that took come into some things in East London, but it never affected me with my events or my things because 
I was kind of protected. I had my security. I had my, um, and I knew. There was, I mean, there was a problem with the end. There was a, um, there was a big problem with the gay scene. Uh, we had a gay night, DTPM, and um, they right, yeah, there's a made best gay night in England. Without any yes, doubt. but the but the dealers in there, they were a gay mafia, yeah, and they were all big muscle men. And they had a whole big firm of them, 20 of them, 15 of them, all muscle men. And they would be in there selling all the ecstasy and the cocaine and everything else. And, like, we, it was difficult to stop them. And then this um, Barry Leg bill came in, uh, a new bill, government bill, that said if clubs don't stop drug dealing going on in their club, they're going to close, take, revoke the licenses. So now we're in a situation where we've got to stop these people dealing. At first, we were like, let them deal with it. They get nicked, it's their problem. Do you know what I mean? Just let them get on with it. Yeah. It became your problem. They had a line. They had a line of people getting it. was that blatant. It was so open. It was ridiculous. And so, like, well, now we've got now this new bill coming through. We've got to stop it. We've got to stop them doing this. And we did. So we said, right, we've got you've got to stop it. We, we can't do it anymore. And it kicks off, and there was a big fight about security and the gay mafia. And it all got really nasty. And they all left. They left. The next week, we know they're coming back. So I take control of the situation and I call my boys and uh, my boys are the heavies, the heavy heavies, not the gay heavies, but the heavies. So I call in and I've got like, um, um, I, we work out a little thing with Leo's father. Um, Leo is my partner, Leo and Bushwacker. Leo is my partner in the end. And Leo's father is also my partner in the end. And the plan, we just we, we put together a plan. And it was like, okay, um, you come in your shirt and tie. Uh, you know, he's an older man, like posh, very middle class. Like, talks very posh, very, very well. He's going to meet with him and he's going to say, oh, no, you can't come in here. Because that's going to throw them. That there's this older posh man saying, you can't come in. It's not security. You can't come in. It's an old posh man saying, you can't. Who, who says we can't come in? Mr. C says you can't come in. Where the fuck is Mr. C? Bring him out here now. And he's, he's already out here. He's over there, over the road, just there. They look over the street. They see the, the two men that I'm with and run, all 20 of them. Run away. Really? Yeah. I never see anyone move so fast in my life. So that's a case of my upbringing standing up, looking up for me. My mates that I grew up with standing, going, yeah. You called it, you call what we call enforcement. Uh, yeah, I called the big boys. Or my, my friend Byron would say bone crushers. Yeah, the big boys. They're, you know, the ones you don't bone crushers. They don't play. They don't talk. Yeah, they they don't, play. don't play. And they see them and they're off. And that was it. Never had a problem ever again. Ever again. Because you come from Street University. That part. And I talk about this in New York, too. I remember playing in the clubs, and the mob guys controlled these rooms, these clubs. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't have an establishment I'm, running. I'm, I'm, little heads up. I'm looking at the clock, and I've got a, I've got a real tour coming around to my house in about 10 minutes. So I'm a real tour. Okay, right. so we're going to leave one last question for you. And I was going to ask this, you know, you have done all these amazing things, okay? Oh, so many. I mean, this you've covered so much, and thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously there was the record labels, Plink Plonk, End Recordings, and now Super Freak Records and events that I do now. Last but not least, where does Mr. C see him going in the yonder from now? Well, 
No, well, um, that's the plan yeah, that we want to know. There's, there's lots of plans. Um, I'm a, I studied five years as a method actor, um, trained, so I'm a trained method actor, and I've studied psychology. Um, I teach meditation uh, because I've been into it since 1983. And so I teach meditation and help people as a life coach provide tools for them to be able to be the masters of their own universes and their own illusions. So that's definitely going to be some of that in my future. There's definitely going to be some acting in my future, but the music story's not finished yet by a long shot. And um, I'm moving back to London um, actually tomorrow, and um, I'm going to continue working my label, Super Freak Records, and um, making loads of music. And I want, you know, my my my, my I'm, pu I'm going I'm pushing hard, and that's why I'm moving back to London because I've got much more support and opportunity there for my label to grow, my management are there my PR company is there all my team is there so I need to really get there so I can make super freak the platform that it deserves to be so I can continue to support new talent and new kids coming through to push their music the legacy is everything for me it's so it's about now you know super freak is one of the best underground acid labels in in the world and but it's underground it goes below the radar and after 20 years of as being a brand super freak it's time for that to now come uh, slightly above and get picked up by the radar and it's going to take me going back to london to make that happen and that's going to be the mission for the next year um you know it's been very difficult for me as mr c living in america i'm not going to lie um there's a great scene across america why? Well, there's, Why? Well, there's, there's a great scene across America, but my sound is very unique. It's not generic in any way. It's acid techno house music hybrids that are very left of center, very electronic, very weird, dark and twisted, um, edgy, uh, forward thinking. And like that, whilst the underground scene in America is amazing and understands me completely, the club scene doesn't. The club scene's more generic. So I've not got the um, work and everything that I need to keep me here um, on a full level in the clubs. Whereas the clubs in the UK and in Europe get it a bit more. They will go for a slightly more underground and innovative sound in Europe than they will in the clubs here. And I'm not talking about the undergrounds because the undergrounds here in America are amazing. I'm talking about the clubs. So for me to have enough work, I need to be a working more in clubs in America. And sadly, I'm not getting those bookings and agencies haven't known how to deal with me out here because like, you know, everywhere I DJ, I smash it. And everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. I'm fun, I get involved. I get part, become part of the community. I get on with the promoters, but then, you know, they're underground and they're, you know, they want to book other DJs. I might get a gig once a year or twice, once every two years. What about in between time? So I've got to go to London and Europe to earn money to, uh, which is a weaker economy than America and the dollar being so strong. And I've got to earn money to convert it to dollars to pay to live and pay double in America. Yeah. When I can, be living, I can be living at the price in England with more work, more gigs, and more opportunity and more support and more. So I just need to be in England for the good of my brand and for the good of my music. It needs to be in England. And I've got other opportunities happening in with acting opportunities, uh, music opportunities for making music for uh, soundtracks or for commercials. And I've got all these opportunities there that I don't have here. And so I'm going back to London to take care of shit and get that on. And, you know, 
this next year, 2023, is going to be a massive, massive year for me. And it's going to be a little bit of a comeback. I never really went away. But, you know, I've seen a lot of DJs, you know, they're massive and they get smaller and they have a comeback. Let's call it a rebranding. It's a rebranding exercise. That's all it is. Because you never left. I don't have to rebrand because what I'm doing is already innovative and forward thinking. It's about marketing it in a different level and in where in the place it should be marketed for it to blow up again. Basically. So that's what I'm going to be doing right now. And then I'll be following that up with, uh, you know, working on lots of different projects. I'm working on a festival. Um, I did summer love festival in 21 and it was my first festival uh, outdoor festival and it was fantastic. I lost a bunch of money, but it was what it was. And then I did try to do it again in 21 and uh, my festival got closed down because the queen died. And again, I lost a load of money, but now I'm working on it for 22. So um, that's another thing I'm going to be working on my festival. Um, I'm changing the name from Summer Love Festival to Manifest. It's a much better name, a bit more festival style name. Uh, but it's, it's going to have the same arenas and there's going to be a Summer Love arena. So there'll still be the connection, but the name will change. Of the, it's a, re- a rebranding of the festival. So I'm going to work on the festival. I'm going to work on the label. I'm going to work more on my own productions. I want to get more prolific because I'll be more focused. I won't be having to travel off for three weeks, four weeks to earn money to come home to pay for the bills. I'll be there and I'll be settled and I'll be, so I'll be more prolific with my songwriting and my music writing because I'll be more focused and I have to travel as much. And so there's all these things that I need to be doing to make, to follow my flow into the goal that I have. Is there a call for you guys for the shaman to go back out? Have you been asked about that? People have been asking, I get harassed on my Mr. C page all day long. It's never going to happen. Uh, Colin Angus doesn't want to. He's never wanted to do it again. And he's the governor. He's the founding member of the band. And, uh, you know, without Colin, there is no shaman. And while I've been right up for it, believe me, over the last 10 years, I've been up for it back because where it's a very important band and um, Colin's just not up for it. And now we're in our late 50s, mid to late 50s. It's no point. It's we're no rolling stones. It's a young man's game. And touring is a young man's game. It's not an older gentleman's game. And that I think that's a big part of it. And even I feel like that as even as a DJ now. I don't want to be DJing every weekend doing 10, 10 gigs a month. It's too much for me now. I want to do pick and choose and do the three or four gigs a month that really suit me. And I have to take weekends off and be but more yeah, focused. It wants to be like that smiling. Do yeah, really like yeah i think that was um get that might have been get lost in miami winter music i'm just saying he wants to be relaxed he wants to do what he does just yeah yeah so you know so uh, you know for me london is going to do that not being on tour traveling takes it out of you You know, they would love to see that again. You getting that look and coming back out and performing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I look great anyway. I've got always got good. Oh, you do. You look fabulous. No, there's not, uh, no question I'm, on that. I'm saying, I've, aged pretty, I've aged pretty well, so I'm, I'm lucky like that. But um, you know, uh, actually doing that touring, you know, like consistently, month in, month out, week in, week out, I'm over it. I know it's too much. Uh, you know, I'm like, I, and living in London, I can say, right, oh, I've got a gig. I'm going to play at Panorama Bar in Berlin this weekend. Go and enjoy a Saturday night at Panorama Bar. And I can still do my work all day, all week long. So yes. this, is, this is why I need this change so that I don't have to be on tour. I can just go and do gigs. 
Well said. Excellent, excellent time I had spending this with you. Education. Right, it's been a while since we've seen each other, and you're an absolute legend yourself. So <laughs> just to, to be here and be interviewed by a legend such as you is my absolute honor and privilege, sir. <laughs> I can't thank you enough, and I'm blushing for God's sake. <laughs> I don't like to blush, but thank you. Um, I will say this, don't stop what you're doing because the key to staying young is exactly what you're doing. Yeah. You'll can't never won't, don't stop. Racket to the rhythm, racket to the rhythm, can't, won't, don't stop. That's it. <laughs> got to, brother, you got to keep going because if you're not going to, because the minute you take your foot off the accelerator, it's over. Only you yeah. control that. Only yeah. you. I just heard a knock at my door. Well, our timing is perfect, isn't it? It's wonderful. For everyone out there in the world, thank you very much. Mr. C, Richard West. Ah, Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for, for having me on board. Absolutely brilliant. You look after yourself and you'd be very well, sir. Thank you, sir. And hopefully soon we'll be working together again. It's been a long yeah. time. But thank you.